We are coming to the finish line of Jesus's visionary manifesto for life, for the abundant life, often called the Sermon on the Mount, from Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So let's read just one verse today. It is a summary verse. It is a call to action. Jesus is painting this picture of the kind of life that is possible when God reigns as king over every single aspect of life. This life will be abundant. You will die to yourself, but you will come alive more like Christ. That's a good exchange. <laughs> My wife says amen. And so we're coming to the end of that vision that Jesus is painting about the kind of life that's possible when Jesus reigns, when his kingdom reigns. That's what we've been singing about, praying about all morning, that his kingship would reign in our life. And that's not just theoretical. It's not for when he returns. It starts right now in every single aspect of life, if we allow him to. That's why he finishes the Sermon on the Mount and says, he who has ears to hear... Actually, no, he doesn't say that. He says, the one who hears these words of mine, he said that somewhere else, the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice will be building their life on the rock. And so he, the whole vision in some ways is dependent upon are we going to choose to have our minds transformed and put it into practice? The abundant life doesn't happen if you don't put it into practice. That's what I meant to say. Okay, so let's read this verse. Matthew 7, 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. I'm going to read this verse in a... Just I did a little translation work on this because that order is right, even though it's not the famous order. It's flipped around, but it's interesting. This is kind of the correct order that the ESV has of the flow of thought. But there's a few words that I just want to help us with. Wish is a strange word in our culture. And so that's, it's not a wish like we wish upon a star. And uh, so I want to bring out that emphasis here in a different way to translate this. Therefore, whatever you desire, that's more of what this word connotates. It's longing and desire. Whatever you desire that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the essence of the law and the prophets. And if you remember back to early in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that, hey, I'm not here to erase one iota, one dot, one tittle from the law and the prophets. I'm here to fulfill it. Now, interestingly, he says essentially, here's how you fulfill it. This is the essence of the law and the prophets. And it's all built on a therefore, which just back to that good old uh, boring AP English literature class in high school, therefore means something. 
It means that everything I've just said is building to this climactic response. And so that's what we're going to look at today. This is a summary call of the ethic of living like Jesus, the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount. How do we live in relation to the world around us? In this one little verse, it's often called the golden rule. This summarizes, doesn't get into all the specifics. We've looked at many, many specifics. But it summarizes everything that Jesus is saying about who God is and who we are in God's eyes and therefore, for how should we live in a way that reflects the heart of the king and fulfills the law of God? So that's what is in this little verse right here. There is revolutionary power in this verse. There's several aspects of this simple little phrase that I want to bring out this morning for us that carry revolution in it. Now, this is called the golden rule. There are many similar versions found in ancient religions. But curiously, so we can go to Athens, we can go into the Greeks, the Romans, and even Jewish rabbis had a version of this before Jesus. But what's so interesting and I think so profound is it's always found to just be in the negative, meaning like this. Do not do to others what you yourself dislike. So it's similar, but Jesus takes that, you could say, that kind of common religious ethic, and he turns it on its head with revolutionary power by inserting the, the power of goodness, the, the power of the positive side. And it's not, I mean, you got to be careful. It's like, oh, just po be positive. No, this is a revolutionary difference. Like if you just go to the negative, just don't do negative stuff. That's not nearly the same as being revolutionary proactive in doing positive stuff. One is just kind of keep you from death. The other is go insert life. So, Tell me if this is the same thing. Stop yelling at your brother. That is not nearly the same thing as be kind and encouraging to your brother. One's just preventing death. One's inserting life. I'm serious. Don't beat your wife is not nearly as powerful as die daily on her behalf with sacrificial love. That was the revolution of Paul <laughs> coming into marriages through the spirit of Christ, applying this ethic. Or don't do bad things. Don't take advantage of orphans. That is not nearly the same thing as invest a whole year of your life time, effort, energy, planning, money, sacrificing what you could be doing in all these other places and spheres to go and serve, actively serve, and then reflect on how that is becoming a new way of life for you to go and actively serve there or here. Those things are abundantly different, are they not? 
And so Jesus is flipping upside down intentionally with the kingdom ethic, the current religious atmosphere of the day. It's not about just not doing harmful things and avoiding death. It's about getting filled up with the life of God and passing that life on to the world around you. So three little words that maybe help us see this. One, this is very proactive on Jesus's part. It says, don't be passive and sit around while the problems exist right in front of you. If you see someone who's hurting, lost, and broken, follow that Christ-like impulse of compassion and go do something about it. Be a part of the change that you know the world needs. It's so proactive, not passive. And one of the most kind of interesting kind of historical pieces of religion from my perspective, Gandhi... A Hindu from India who loved Jesus, loved the writings of Jesus, in fact, has a sad testimony that he wanted to become a Christian, but at the time, the Christians wouldn't allow him because he wasn't the right skin color. It's a tragic historical fact. But he said something that he got from Jesus exactly. And we, pick, we, we say it today. We don't know if it's Jesus or Gandhi. was well, because he got it from Jesus. And it's this. Be the change that you want to see in the world. That's what Jesus is getting at. And I think Gandhi said it beautifully. That picks up this golden ethic of Jesus. It's a proactive. Don't just sit back and not do bad things. Go be the change that you want to see in the world. Another aspect is this is very others-oriented. This idea has so radically shaped the Western world, the United States, and our culture that sometimes we've got to step back and realize how amazing this is. To be others-oriented, to be willing to sacrifice of yourself for the good of others. I mean, there is a way in which Jesus is the archetypal hero of Western culture, even for people that have no idea that he is or think they're atheists and they don't like Jesus. The idea of self-sacrificing to lift others up is absolutely unheard of as an ethic of life for everyone to take on until and post-Jesus. It's how we get things in our world right now where a rotary club, for example, says service above self. And people are like, you know, business people, they might not be Christians, they might not be even theists, so to speak, but they see that and they're like, oh, you know what, that's a good thing for me to do, to not just be about myself, but to look for opportunities for me to give back and serve others and sacrifice some of whatever I have in order to lift others up. Historically, we have to give credit where credit is due. And I know we love to give credit, but these are good things to talk about with maybe among friends who aren't explicitly Christian. That ethic of self-sacrifice to lift others up exists nowhere in human history until Jesus. That is the Christ-like effect on human history where we would have this crazy idea that sacrificing of ourself to lift others up 
is a good and noble way to live. And that's what Jesus is talking about right here. And lastly, this is just simply powerful. And that word gets used a lot. It gets overused, but it's a fantastic word. Do you want to become a powerful person, not a weak person? Jesus is showing us late here in the Sermon on the Mount, late intentionally, in a nutshell, in a summary, here's what it looks like to become a powerful, Christ-like person, a person living in the abundant life to the point that they can now overflow to others. Do you ever feel like sometimes you're like, well, I just don't have any more to give? Yes is your answer, just to help you out. So we don't lie here. We try not to lie too much in church. So yes was your answer. We all feel that, right? That's our own human frailty and weakness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the whole premise on which we come to Jesus in the, in the Sermon on the Mount is admitting we don't have it all together. I need help. On my own, I kind of make a mess of things. I don't have the strength to be everything I wish I could be and to do all the things I wish I could do. And we, on our own strength, <laughs> make a mess of life. And it's okay because you know what? That's the gospel. I can't, but he can. When we come to the end of our own strength, God says, well, good job. That's where grace begins. Learn to live in my grace. And the point that Jesus is getting at here is that you can learn to live in so much grace that you become so powerful, you have something to give where the orientation of your life is outward, outward, because you're overflowing, because you're, you're taken care of, you're getting stronger. Not that your life's gonna be perfect, but that you're gonna feel so much life brewing and growing in you that there's going to be a natural flowing outward. Do unto others as you would want them to do to you. That's a place of strength. You're on the giving end, the outward orientation where you want to partner with God to say, how can I help see your kingdom advance? That is a place of power. It's not a power that you have on your own strength. That's why it's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And the beginning is, come to me all who are poor in spirit. You recognize you don't have it all together? Good. Let's talk. That's how it's supposed to start. It's not how it's supposed to finish. Go make the world a better place by doing for others what you want done for you, what you desire to be done for you. Now, that's where it gets a little interesting. Whatever you desire that others would do to you, do also to them. This is the essence of the law of the prophets. Well, what do you desire that others would do to you? That's an interesting question. 
you probably want them to treat you as you would treat yourself. Well, how do you treat yourself? This is where it gets deep. You probably treat yourself, no, you do treat yourself according to your own identity. Jesus makes a massive assumption that through letting him reign as king, you are going to have a healthy identity. And from that healthy identity, so that you know how you should be treated, you know how God sees you and God treats you, from that place, you overflow to treat others similarly. There's a parallel verse where Jesus makes this even more explicit that I want to take us to because it's so important. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Famously, a little bit later in Matthew, Jesus said this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor. So let's pause there for a second. That's, again, the proactive ethic of the kingdom of heaven. You shall love your neighbor. That is you overflowing onto your neighbor that agape love of God, that undeserved, unearnable goodness that flows from the eternal fountain of what is God's love and goodness. As you receive it, now you pour it out. Love your neighbor. And what, who's your neighbor? Well, that Jesus gets deep there, right? Well, it's the one you hate. It's your enemy. Well, let's not even go there today. We've already talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount, but here's the key. Love your neighbor. There's the proactive, powerful ethic. As yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So what kind of ethic do you pour out on your neighbor? What kind of good do you do to those around you? The same way that you love yourself, pass it on. Now that sounds a little weird. In our culture, it's like, hmm, wait, wait, wait you love yourself? And there, we get a little mixed up in the Christian world of like, well, you don't love yourself. I just, I'm just a sinner. I, I kind of hate my old sin and, you know, I hate myself. If you don't have a healthy self-love, you don't know how to love others well. Tell me how that's not true from this word. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you hate yourself, what are you going to do to your neighbor? If you don't know how to love yourself with the healthy identity of how God loves you... Can you love your neighbor well? And I know we get a little nervous around that kind of love yourself talk. Well, I'm sorry, Jesus uses it. So let's figure out the healthy way. This is not like new age mumbo jumbo. I just love myself. No. Here's what I believe it absolutely is. It's learning to see yourself as God sees you. And from that a healthy identity will form, a healthy love of yourself. 
Because God loves you. We talked about it this morning. That was the prophetic word from Don. You're worth it. The more you believe that and have a healthy self-love, what is it going to make you do? It's going to make you into a powerful person that can pass it on to the rest of the world. If you think you're a piece of junk, a piece of trash, it's not valuable, you are not passing on anything very powerful. So that's what Jesus is getting at. Let me show you one example from the Apostle Paul, who was a disciple of Jesus. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So he learned from Jesus this ethic right here, and he passed it on to husbands. In the book of Ephesians, listen to the way in which this ethic of do good to others as you would desire them to do to you is played out. This ethic of proactively, powerfully being others-oriented. Where does that come from? What I'm trying to argue is it comes from your own healthy self-love, which is rooted in a healthy self-identity of how God sees you. Watch. Ephesians 5, 25 to 33, here's a couple selected phrases. Paul's saying to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There is the self-sacrificing love that has changed the course of human history forever. That, that, that was absolutely and utterly unheard of as an ethic in marriage. Like, just not even in the same universe as anything any religious leader had ever taught. So this is the revolution of Jesus continuing to be played out in practical ways. And in this case, in the most important relationship that God designed for people to be in and build society upon. From the beginning, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are about this right here that's ultimately supposed to reflect Christ and the church. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up, died for her. In the same way, husbands, check this out, should love their wives as their own bodies. Here's that weird self-love stuff that's all over the Bible. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own self, his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So let each one of you love his wife as himself. <laughs> Three times in like four verses, it says, love your wife as you love yourself. Lay down your life for your wife as you love yourself. Listen to that. The foundation of healthy love for your wife is you treat your wife with the same love that you have for yourself. You nourish and cherish yourself. And what the point of this is, and that's good and healthy, pass it on to your wife. 
take care of your wife like you take care of yourself. Now, it's interesting. There's a phrase in here that in a way, like, I disagree with it. Maybe it's a different time and an era. Nobody ever hated his own flesh. That's not true. That's just not true. Now, maybe, I mean, like, ideally, I don't know. That's just an interesting phrase. But I'm just going to say, nowadays, in our current culture, I know many people that hate themselves. And in fact, almost every single death of despair, overdose, intentional suicide, people loathe themselves. There is a self-hatred from the pit of hell that is real. And so I'm not trying to argue with Paul. In fact, I think we're on the same page. He's, he's, he's really saying that that's, that's not healthy in any way. A healthy person who knows their identity in God has a healthy self-love. I love who I am in Christ. I don't love my sin, but I love that the Bible says all these things about my identity, my value in God's eyes, who I am in God's eyes, that should give, if I encounter it as real, it will give me a healthy self-love that I can pour out to the world around me. So let's dig in for just a few minutes here into this identity piece, because what I'm trying to argue is that Jesus is making an assumption when he says, in the same way that you desire to be treated, do unto others, and that's this revolutionary ethic of the kingdom of God, but there is under that some strong assumptions that by the time you get to this place in the Sermon on the Mount, you have had your identity deeply formed in the truths of how God sees you and who you are in God's eyes that has made you now into a powerful person with a healthy self-love and a healthy identity that is then able to live a life of others-oriented sacrifice. So let's just look at a few places in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is intentionally shaping and forming our identity. That is that ultimately that healthy self-love. Now watch in every single place, it's the, the healthy self-love comes from encountering how God sees us. And that's huge. And that's the vast difference that from the wacko, narcissistic religion of today that just says, oh, I just love myself no matter what. That is also a lie from the pit of hell. And so that, but you know what the enemy always tries to do is to counterfeit what God wants to do. So let's not run away from healthy self-love just because the enemy perverts it all throughout our culture. Let's learn the biblical way that God designed us to have a healthy self-identity in which there is a healthy self-love that pours out onto the world around us or that empowers us to pour out God's love 
on the world around us. And it's all based on this right here. Who are you in God's eyes? How does God see you? So let's quickly look at a few in review places that we've already covered in the Sermon on the Mount that reminds us who we are in God's eyes, how God sees us. It is our identity. The whole opening of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3 to 11, is your identity. The Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the whole kingdom of heaven. And Jesus goes on to pronounce nine blessings. And what we dug into before is the fact that this is God's grace extended to us. God is initiating all of this. You haven't done anything to earn this invitation from, I, from Jesus. All you can do is receive it to say, yes, I'm poor in spirit. I need everything that you have because I'm a mess on my own. And nine times Jesus says, blessed, blessed, blessed. And you know what that word literally means? It means take joy in the divine favor upon your life. And so part of the identity that God's trying to build into you, a grace-based identity, is that you are a favored child of God to whom all of heaven belongs. By grace, all you can do is give up trying to earn it and receive it. Come to the end of your rope and say, I don't have the strength. I don't have the righteousness. I can't do it. I need you. I'm poor in spirit. And Jesus says, all of heaven is yours. My favored child. Blessed, blessed, blessed. We went to the degree to say, you know what? Let's dwell. No, Jesus is saying, your identity, you are meant to recognize you dwell in a land of favor. The kingdom of God is a land of favor, undeserved goodness. Your identity is you dwell in a land of favor. That makes me one of his favorites. Come on! In Matthew 6, 9 to 13, in the disciples' prayer, Jesus revolutionizes our picture of who God is, our Father, right there. If that's all you know, it's all you ever hear, it's all that becomes real, your identity will change. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not on temptation, but deliver us from evil. Your identity is breathtaking. God says, you are his beloved child. And because of that, uh, he has given you authority to declare, as it already is in heaven, so also on earth. He's given you authority. He has forgiven you. He promises to protect you. He promises to provide for you. If all four of those things become true, you become powerful. If one of those four things becomes true, 
why, when I say it becomes true, it's already true in heaven, but we need to encounter it as the heart of God so it becomes our identity. Yes, uh, my father, I am a beloved child of God. You've given me your authority. Man, have you provided for me. Man, have you protected for me. As these things become more real, guess what's happening? You get stronger. Wow, I can pass some of this on. I don't want to just sit back and do nothing in life. I want to pass this on. This is the greatest news ever. Matthew 7, 7 through 11, each of you asks, any of you asks, he says, for a if, if any of, excuse me, if any of your children asks you for bread, who among you will give them a stone? Or if they ask for a fish, who will give them a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? This is more of that unbelievable grace-based identity. We're not earning this. This is the nature of God. This is who God is, and we're just the blessed beneficiaries of a good God who says, come to me as a beloved child. I want you to know me in a way where just like any of your kids, if you're a healthy parent, are not scared to ask you for good things, and they're not scared that when they ask for things, they're, you're going to give them a rock or a scorpion. I want you to be like that with me, except you know what? Compared to my goodness, you're evil. So be that much more safe in conf and confident when you come to me. Because I delight to give you good gifts and only good gifts. This is your identity that Jesus is trying to build into you that you wake up with in the morning. And come on now, when you do, there's some power that you have to share with the world. And lastly, Matthew 6, 25 to 33 I'll finish with this one. Don brought it up as a prophetic word. You are worth it. You are valuable to God. In one of the most famous passages in all the Bible where it talks about like, don't be anxious about life, what you eat or gonna drink, what you're gonna put on, is life not more than food, body more than clothing? We're like, oh yeah, yeah, okay, I gotta stop stressing, trust that God will provide. And while that's gloriously true, what is less known and emphasized is why should we trust that God is going to take care of us? And here is the answer. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So there's the scriptural basis for exactly what my wife was talking about this morning. Jesus is saying it. The reason why you don't have to be anxious about life and is God going to provide for me? Does God care? Does God see what's going on? Jesus' answer is be peaceful and trust that I will provide because you are valuable to me. So if you're ever wondering if you're worth it, now the cross is the best declaration 
of how valuable you are to God. And Don already referenced that this morning. And here's Jesus explicitly saying it. Have peace and trust that God sees what's going on and will provide because, my child, you're valuable to me. It's so simple. It's kind of, that's back to this parental image, this parental picture of God saying, hey, man, you don't need to make life that complicated. What's your identity? You're a beloved child. I'm the perfect parent. You're stressing out? Hey, I see what's going on. You don't need to stress. I'm going to take care of you. You're valuable to me. When that becomes real on earth in your heart, mind, and spirit as it already is in heaven, you get a little bit more pep in your step. You get a little bit more powerful. So these are just four of the areas that Jesus intentionally in his visionary manifesto here of what life's all about. It's no coincidence that over and over Jesus hits on our identity. We live from our identity. We have no way around that. We're made by God like that. And so that's why Jesus over and over goes after our identity. Who are you in God's eyes? Do you know how God sees you? Do you know how God feels about you? Do you know how much God actually loves you, wants to take care of you, gives you authority, protects you, provides for you, delights to give you good gifts? And over and over and over. So our encouragement as we get towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount is to see this high ethic of Jesus. He calls us to be like him. To be proactive, others-oriented, powerful in going out, seeing the problems in the world, and by the leading of the Spirit... Being the change, being part of the change, part of the solution that we know and long to see in the world that is the kingdom of God advancing. But you don't do it on your own strength. You do it by basking in your identity long enough so that that power wells up and a fire is in your belly that says, I got to do something like Christ did for me. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this good news that you have created us with purpose and mission or with part of our purpose to be on mission with you, reflecting your powerful, sacrificial love to the world around us. For any of us who wonders if we can do important things in the world, may your Holy Spirit settle that in our hearts. And each and every day until you call us home or return, we have the opportunity to do your good in the world, to do good to others on an individual scale or on a nationwide scale. It doesn't matter. We can be 
influencers of your kingdom that model your heart, your goodness, your power, your love, your forgiveness, your grace, your justice. But we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to overflow, not try to just do that on our own strength, but overflow from a place of our identity in you. So we pray as, as even as the worship team sang about and Don prophesied about that your Holy Spirit would be showing us our value in your eyes. We ask for revelation, continued revelation, increased revelation of who we are in your eyes, how you see us. So that like a, a child who is just so loved by their parents, they then smile and exude that love out into the world. May we be those beloved children. For the advancement of your kingdom and your glory on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I will sing a new song.